everyone. Welcome to The Green Room, where we speak to entrepreneurs and thought leaders in fintech across Asia. I'm your host, Armita Fear. We are sponsored by the ASEAN Financial Innovation Network, or AFIN, Oxygen by Apex, and Open Banking Fintech Rockus. In this episode, I speak with Thano San, founder and CEO of Modus Operandi, or Mo, a digital financial solutions provider in Myanmar, offering services like wallet transfers, bill pay, earned wage access, cash withdrawal, and more. Thano grew up in Myanmar and Australia and started her career in law. She moved back to Myanmar in 2020 and got involved in the finance sector through her connection to Shui Bank. She had a front row seat to the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and recent military coup on financial services in Myanmar. With that backdrop, Thano founded Mo in 2020 and launched the first MVP in 2021. She bootstrapped Mo for the first two years and then fundraised for the first time from a local bank in September of 2022. You can learn more about Modus Operandi or Mo by visiting mo.com.mm. And now a word from our sponsors. Hello everyone, my name is Manish Devan. I am the Managing Director for AFIN, which is ASEAN Financial Innovation Network. We run the very popular apixplatform.com, which is a collaboration platform to help financial institutions work together with a very vibrant ecosystem of fintechs from across the world. We now operate what we call as Oxygen by Apex, which is essentially a knowledge sharing platform and we are very happy to collaborate with The Green Room. It's a great combination of what we do as a platform service provider and what The Green Room brings to you as a a knowledge sharing base. You can find out more about Apex on apexplatform.com and you can find out more about Oxygen by logging into apexoxygen.com where you'll find a lot of great panels, keynotes, uh, masterclasses that we do from time to time and uh, look forward to seeing you there. Thano, welcome to The Green Room. Thank you so much for being here today. We're really excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Really keen to speak about our journey as well as sharing those stories about a founder going through an unsettling time as well. Wonderful. Let's start with you, Thano, like before all of the political unrest started. Let's talk about like your personal journey. I think you mentioned you grew up in Myanmar and yep. then moved to Australia during or after high school. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience growing up in Myanmar and then transitioning cultures to Australia and maybe some of, a little bit about your early career there? Yeah, sure. I grew up in Myanmar, born and raised here. I went to elementary, middle school and high school in Myanmar. And I specifically went to an international school. So actually, my primary language growing up was English rather than Burmese itself. Growing up in Myanmar, it was very much untouched from the world, specifically because we were under a military regime back then as well for 60 years. Myanmar didn't have access to the international space. And growing up here, it was very much localized. But going to an international school with a localized context gives a lot of perspective for me and my um, student peers as well. Back then, it was very much about understanding the world through the textbooks, right? Understanding about the U.S. history, the world history through the textbook and through the teachers. And I thought it was very interesting. Um, the education system in Myanmar specifically is not the best. So 
it was definitely a privilege for myself and my siblings to go into an international school and see a different side of the world, right? And I was actually supposed to go to the U.S. So I did my SATs, my APs, all of that went through the U.S. education system. Then I ended up in Australia. It was a lot closer to home, right? The U.S., the flight was around about 24 hours from Yangon. So we went to, ended up in Australia instead. I studied media comms and sociology for my bachelor in Australia. I actually didn't have a lot of culture shock when I went to Australia because there was this course that all international students had to do. It was called foundation course. And all the international students were collected into the same, you know, group. So we were all sharing different cultures and everyone was from like Hong Kong, Singapore, Thailand, you name it, all Southeast Asian countries. So it was really good transitioning period for all of us. And when I went to undergrad, because I studied sociology and my primary language was English, I didn't really have a difficulty of trying to catch up and understand all these complex texts and literature that we were supposed to be, you know, reading and learning about. So it was very interesting. But of course, like growing up in a country like Myanmar, where the tradition is a lot more conservative, the society always expect you to become a you know, do a business degree or do a medical degree and become a doctor. But I wanted to do sociology. I just thought that it was very interesting coming from the perspective of um, a sociologist to see how the society is constructed, especially looking back to Myanmar and seeing how our country was structured so differently from a place like Australia, right, where there's democracy and the system of, um, you know, freedom of speech, for example, all of that was very different. So the culture shock for me was not really in terms of adapting into Australia, but really thinking about how different the two countries are and how they're governed by and how people live in it. That was very interesting to me. So my last thesis for my bachelor, actually, I did it on a dictatorship, how law in society and dictatorship structures people's lives and how they operate. So it was very interesting. Then I went on to do my Juris Doctor, so I was very much interested in how the legal system really affects or impacts the society that we live in, but I went went on to do law. I was in Australia for about six years because a total of three years of Bachelor, three years of um, Juris Doctor. During my Juris Doctor, I was able to touch onto a lot of different aspects of law, specifically in corporate law as well, so I was working part-time while I was doing full-time study there. Um, at Baker McKenzie, really enjoyed my legal journey there as well. Got to see a very different side of um, a business, really got to experience all the due diligence, all the paperwork that lawyers have to go through to really make deals happen. And I really appreciated it. Um, I was in Australia for, after that, I just came back to Myanmar. I got registered and um, I got admitted as a lawyer in Australia as well. But I wanted to come back home to Myanmar to really think about how I can impact what I've learned through my bachelor, through my Juris Doctor, and see what I can do back home. And I came back to Myanmar in about 2020, January, actually. Yeah. Wow. That's um, quite, that's an amazing um, story of, yeah, transitioning cultures, but also like trying to find like the similarities and bringing things together. Um, you know, I think you've also studied all over the place uh, from from reading your background. You've studied in Beijing, you've studied in London, you've studied in Oxford. Um, have all of have you had similar experiences across those uh, those different places? Has, um, you know, living living in different parts of the world, experiencing so many different cultures and then bringing that back to 
uh, Yang on bringing that back to Myanmar. How do you think those kind of experiences living all over the place and absorbing all those other cultures like really shaped what you're doing now in, in Myanmar? Sure. I've been really interested in exploring different cultures and the way that people think differently. I would say that studying in Myanmar versus Australia is even also very different because the way that they teach you, the way that they ask questions, the way they see the world impacts how we learn things and how they teach us, right? So I really enjoyed my experience in Beijing specifically because I went to the Peking Management School and the lecturers were all Chinese. So these are really, really great economics philosophers from um, China. And they were talking about how Chinese philosophy affects the way they see um, the way they think about business and the way they think about family business specifically. And it was very interesting because it's not something that I thought of before. So for example, when we're talking about family business, um, you know, we're talking about second generation, third generation, how do we grow that aspect? And Chinese think of it from a more family orientated perspective. And I really enjoyed seeing that from that perspective. And when I was studying in the UK, again, because I went to do a bank governance course with a lot of other executives from around the world, coming from South Africa, coming from like France, Spain. It was so interesting to see because they were all in the same industry, right? In the banking sector, but they have different perspective on how they do do things. So it really made me be more flexible and to understand that there's not only one way to look at an, a solution, uh, an issue, there are multiple ways to look at an issue and to see that there are various solutions that we can come about. One of the things that um, probably living all over the place allowed me to understand that there's just not just one solution to a problem. And especially when we're coming, when I'm coming back to Myanmar, it really shows that, you know, when I see a maybe a social issue of, of like financial inclusion, for example, that was what I was really interested in. I saw that what are we doing now that is, you know, what can be done differently? to the issue at hand. And that really gave me the way that I think actually, because I think that you have to experience different culture to understand that there are different ways to do things, right? Absolutely. That's so inspiring, taking all of the different cultural uh, experiences that you've had, geographic experiences that you've had to actually apply that to, sol to, to solve a really big, important problem in Myanmar. That's amazing. Can I ask what um, what made you decide to move back? And I think also when you moved back, you sort of transitioned from the law side to working um, in financial services. What prompted that transition? For sure. Um, I usually get this question. Right? I even got admitted as a lawyer and I'm like, well, how come you ended up doing fintech right out of law school? Yeah. So a lot of my friends wonder the same thing. They're like, I thought you're going to do law, but you're now in a fintech startup scene. But when I came back to Myanmar, I wanted to do something that had a positive social impact from a public policy or a um, legislature perspective. But it's very different. The legal system is completely different. Yes, I have the knowledge and I have the understanding of what I need to do. But navigating through a, a completely different legal system is a whole other challenge for me. So I came to a conclusion that this is something I want to revisit when I'm older, a lot older. But now for the time being, what can I do in my capacity to have positive impact on a on my country? And not only in my country, right, from specifically in the ASEAN region, in any emerging market, I wanted to see what I can do. And I thought that um, financial technology was something that I would be really interested in. So I was a non 
executive director at TreeBank for the past like five years. So while I was studying, I was very much in touch with the Myanmar banking sector and financial services. So this is a natural step for me to go towards. Um, with my legal knowledge and my legal skills, it really gave me the tools to really dissect a problem and to understand what I need to do to fix an issue. That's how I like to see it, right? Sometimes people ask me, oh, you studied, you spent three years studying law. Is it a waste for you, right? And I, I don't think so because I think I gained a lot of skills and tools and it taught me to really think differently and think really critically. That is different to even when I was studying sociology or if I had studied business, right? Um, one of the things about fintech specifically is at that time, Myanmar fintech sector was just developing and the idea of wallet just came about. So people are only starting to understand what it is, right? But of course, fintech is so vast that it's not only digital wallet. Digital wallet only provides a channel to access digital financial services. So I thought that it was a good time. Then, of course, COVID hit and it accelerated the fintech sector and the digital wallet usage in Myanmar. And I thought it was an even a better time for me to keep going with what we're doing um, with Mo. That's amazing. Um, I mean, let's talk about um, Mo now. A lot of getting, you know, getting involved in the finance sector in Myanmar compelled you to start Mo. Let's talk about founding Mo. And I also want to note for the audience that we talked to a lot of founders who, yes, started businesses with COVID as a backdrop. And so would love to hear about that part of the story. But there's also another part of the story in Myanmar where there was a military coup in mm -hmm. February of 2021. And so you really had to start Mo. Uh, I guess you started Mo, decided to start Mo, and then suddenly this happened very shortly thereafter. Would love to know about, obviously, the COVID impact um, and how that influenced your uh, Mo journey, as well as then like how you thought about like building and growing a business with this additional layer of political instability in the background. Yeah, I think, especially when I wanted to start Mo, it was just sheer passion and drive that I was like, I need to do this. There's no other way that I don't see myself doing it. So the idea was, you know, it was already COVID and during COVID, the banking sector was already really shaking in Myanmar, but digital financial services were booming. You could say that people started to rely more on contact lens, um, contactless transfers and payments. So it was an idea that the fintech sector is going to keep growing. And this is where the momentum was coming, right? Um, for me, when I started in December of 2020, I decided to do, okay, I want to focus on a specific issue. I want to focus not on the B2C segment, but I want to do more on the B2B um, offering of financial services. Many of these MSMEs, you know, they're 90% plus in Myanmar economy is considered to be MSMEs. All of these are excluded from the banking sectors. So these guys don't have business identity. They don't have a financial identity as well. So it's very hard for them to scale. And that's the exact social um, solution issue that social issue that I really want to tackle onto. And one of the things for me was to look into how banks were offering the service. During this time, businesses did not have the support from the bank because we had a cash issue, we had liquidity issue. It was a whole mess during that time. And COVID was already a whole mess. Yeah. Then in the beginning, I 
we just started out with, you know, what's going to be our MVP doing research and development. So that took an entire um, year for us. But when the military coup happened, the political instability and the security concerns were a lot higher. So yes, we were already operating virtually, but it also put on the additional challenge of that security aspect and the instability of whether what's going to happen next for us, like when this is going to end. But we had this mindset of like, Hey, you know what? Things are going to, no matter what happens, these issues are still going to exist or financial exclusion issues are still going to exist. And we want to be able to support that issue one way or another. So we started out with not a lot of use case. We only started out with one use case, which is payroll. During that time, it was very difficult to get cash. So banks were not able to give out cash to companies because companies use cash to give payroll to their employees. There was an issue. So we came in and solved that issue. And that's how we actually launched soft launch in August of 2021. During the complete chaotic environment that Myanmar was in, we decided we're like, you know what? We're going to go out there, just get a few companies. And we, we started out with only about six companies that were doing payroll with us in the midst of it. But the mindset for us was really just to keep going. Just keep going. Because all my team, because their families themselves were high anxiety, very unstable environment. We don't know what was going to happen. So we just took it day to day. And each day, the issue would be completely different, right? Today, it might be about um, finding acquisitions, finding customers who will want to do payroll with us. The next day, it might be a security concern because we also had agent networks. So we had agent networks around two states at that time, so very little. We had about like, um, I think, 800 agents in Yangon and Mandalay State. And the next day would be about, hey, we can't service, go and give liquidity management to the agents because the security concern on the roads are X, Y, Z. So it was very much taking it day by day and understanding that, okay, it's go time. It's now or never type of mindset. And we were still driving with that vision to promote financial um, inclusion for MSMEs. With that, I think really shows my team as well. That's why I always tell them that I wouldn't be able to do it without them. But at that time, one of the hardest things for myself as a founder and CEO was really people management. Because during that time, as you can understand, people start to look for a way out of Myanmar. So there were a lot of uh, turnover rate. It's not their fault. It's not that they hate this country. They don't want to be with um, working with Mo. It's just that they're thinking what's the best for them. Rightfully so, right? Because you don't know what's going to happen, what ha- what's going to happen next. And they have their families to think about. So that issue was one of the toughest uh, for me to handle. And we still have that issue. I do see a lot of resources going to neighboring countries just because the opportunity is better. And even if the opportunity is not better, at least it's safer for them. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like an incredibly challenging environment to build a business. Um, I want to come back to some of the the points you made around where a resource is going, how does, you know, who are the different stakeholders who are involved in actually building like the tech ecosystem. But I can imagine for so many reasons <laughs> that, you know, building a business with this backdrop is so challenging. I mean, building a business in general is challenging. Founding a business, founding a business financial services is challenging, but when you add in all of these layers, when every day you're like looking at a different challenge um, mm-hmm. that may be related to your business, but maybe like external, sounds like it takes a lot of real grit and resilience to continue pushing through that. So massive kudos to you, um, Thano, for, um, you know, Thank pushing you. forward. 
let's talk a little bit also about like Mo itself, like the product. You said you started with a payroll product. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about like the different product suites, that you, product suite that you have now for the different customers that you're targeting um, and how they maybe fit together, uh, if so. Sure. We started out with just one use case, and that was just payroll, as I said. Um, and we were able to grow quite aggressively. So in August, we were just turning about like 50,000 US dollars per month on payroll only. And that was, you know, back then I was like, oh, great, we're doing 50K. But now yeah. we're actually churning about like 3 million per month on um, oh. yeah monthly volume of transactions. So most of these contributions come from our MSMEs as well as our payroll customers. And we also have earned wage access that we provide to our payroll customers. Um, so after the official launch of Mo in um, December of 2021, throughout the entire 2022, we were expanding our product services and expanding our customer base. So one key issue in Myanmar is that they don't have HR software or HR systems when you go to these MSMEs. So it's very difficult. We can't just say, hey, let me integrate into your payroll system and I'll provide you earned wage access. It was very much like a manual processing that they had to do. And we learned on the job, right? Because there's no other precedence company before us to look at and say, hey, those companies did X, Y, Z. We shouldn't do this. We shouldn't do that. So it was very much, you know, first mover disadvantage for us while trying to navigate through all of the instability in the environment. One of the things that we offered next was actually earned wage access. During that time, people, it's normal for people to start looking out for um, different financial options, especially during a tough time, right? For example, a blue collar worker, their family might have COVID and they had to use excess funds and they needed emergency funds. So that was a natural next move for us. During that time, COVID was still high. And in fact, at the end of um 2021, Yemma had one of the worst waves of COVID. So many deaths happened because we didn't have enough access to vaccines. And that's a whole other complexity. But that led to a lot of financial needs from people. And especially for me, I wanted to know how we can support in providing that financial services for the people that need it most, these marginalized um, workers, blue collar, even some white collar workers. So loan was not an option. Loan, I looked into it. Microfinances were suffering, especially because from a regulatory perspective, they were saying, we need to understand, you know, customers cannot pay back. And it was so difficult to get um, collection because the roads were not safe. Digital collection was not an option at that point. So for us, we thought that earned wage access was a natural next step. And we launched that product quite quickly. So the idea came about in about um, I think March 2022, and we launched that in May. And it quickly started to pick up more and more. And from there, we started to got a lot, get a lot of B2, more B2B customers. And I think we're at a portfolio of about 100 companies at this point. But we officially launched our product again in August of 2022. And it was very interesting. Once we start offering that, we started to understand more of what pain points B2B MSME businesses have. And from there, we took on to expand our product into Mobis account. So Mobis is actually a business wallet account with a higher threshold and a bit higher KYC. So you do have to um, provide business license by a municipal council or a company registration to receive that higher threshold. But one of the key pain points that we understand from these MSME was it's very hard for them to operate without an actual business bank account. All they end up doing was using their owner's personal accounts 
owner's digital wallets to operate in. That was, yes, good for a short-term solution. But for the long term, they don't have a financial history. If you ask them, like, hey, can you give me your financial statements or like, you know, your cash flow um, margins, they cannot provide that because everything's mixed up, mixed up with their personal owner's books, right? So we are able to identify that problem and provide them with a, another pain point that they had was the interbank. So interbank transfer or settling invoices to a supplier's bank account was very difficult. They were either doing it through cash, go to the bank and going to do the physical transfer, or they were doing it from personal accounts. So this picked up really quickly. So we started the idea probably around like Q4 of 2022. And then we launched that product um, in Q1 of 2023. So we were able to do that quite quickly. And within one month, we were able to get like 1,500 business account. And it was like, now it's um, slowly churning as well. So we were able to increase our monthly volume of transaction simply by the business account itself and by offering a simple pain point a solver for them. So this is where we're at at this point. That's really exciting, Thano. You've been able to launch like so many products for so many different target customers. If I get it right, it's you've got uh, SMEs, SMEs, you've got large payroll customers, and I think mm-hmm. there's also a B2C angle, is right, right with mm-hmm. mobile. Yeah. So there's three des- different aspects to it. I look at it from a B2B offering and then B2B to C offering. But specifically in B2B, there's two different categories. There would be the SMEs and then the enterprise. So what the reason why we have to separate it out is because the pain point is completely different. And enterprise level will have access to banks. So what we offer to them is different. So we offer them more on the employee wellness, EWA perspective, whereas the B2B MSME or SME category, they don't have access to bank. So we offer them from the MOBIS perspective and provide them with a financial um, access to the banking system through our MOBIS account. Yeah, that's great. That's really great. And I guess for our listeners who don't know, I also work at an earned wage access company called Waitly. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's actually how Thano and I know each other through, um, through Toby. Hi, Toby. Um, if he hears this podcast, uh, I think... I think it's an it's a fascinating solution, uh, and I I'm really interested to understand like how um, it's been received actually in Myanmar because um, you know I operate in in Indonesia and Bangladesh. Bangladesh is right next to Myanmar, and mm-hmm. I'm wondering from you know we often get um, a lot of questions around you know why why is there a need for this in the market? Why do employers want it? Could um, couldn't like banks and HR companies just do this mm-hmm. themselves? Um, what are what are some of your responses to those challenges, and what kind of market education have you had to do, Sano, to actually make people accept this product? Um, yeah, yeah. I think definitely we had our first mover disadvantage here as well. We didn't have any previous data that we could draw on, so it was a lot of research and development to for people to understand it and for us to communicate it in the right way. Whenever we went to market or sell EWA, companies would always assume that we're loans. They're like, oh, pay employee loan, payday loan. I say, no, it's not a loan. This is in fact a safer product. So during that time, like I said, people, employees specifically were looking for um, financing options and they didn't have a lot of options, right? Firstly, they might not even have a bank account. And during that time, banking crisis was happening. So banks were not issuing loans. You look at microfinance as another option. Microfinance, very high interest rate. Yes, you don't require collateral. But during that time, 
crisis era. Nobody wants to take the risk. So what ends up happening was people started to do more of informal loans. So maybe on a community level, um, they would start getting with really, really high interest rates. So the demand was actually coming from the employee side for us. When we talk to, for example, blue collar workers, such as in the FMB industry, waiters, security guards, you know, cleaners, these people were the key people that were driving um, the product for us, especially because we started to launch it in the market where people don't even understand what salary advance is. To put it simply, a salary advance, right? It's not payday loans. We were trying to say we're providing salary advance, but um, the lucky thing that for us is that the central bank actually recognizes this product. So we were able to proudly say that, hey, we're providing salary advance and this is the benefits that you can do. So slowly, employers start to understand. Our sales team got better as well, right? Because completely new team, only been in the market for one year, doing a product that is hasn't been done before. So our sales team got better. People were able to understand that differentiate between um, payday loan and uh, EWA specifically. So that educating piece to the employer side picked up. But once a few key players picked up, and this is what Toby told me, he told me this. He said, a few key players need to do lighthouse branding for you. And I completely agree. That's what we did. That's what I did after talking to him. That's what I did. So we got a few big corporates with like really big names. So enterprise level. They started doing some EWA for their employees. We launched that in our socials and everything. Others picked up, especially the smaller, medium-sized retail businesses picked up. And from there, it just kept going and going. Now we're growing on like 30, 30% growth rate every single month from wow. EWA. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. And I, I, yeah, I totally see the same strategy in our work. It's yeah. Educating the market is, is half the challenge. I think particularly when it's a completely new product. Um, as I think there's also mark sort of that customer awareness you have to do on like the B2C side. Mm-hmm. It's um, what 70% of Myanmar is underbanked or unbanked. Yeah. And um, Mo is actually helping those people, but sometimes like the barrier to actually um, getting people to use the product is getting them to understand that it's not like all of the other predatory options that they already mm-hmm. have. So um, amazing. I'm glad the same strategy is working yeah. in, in Myanmar. That's wonderful. Yeah, um, I think it's been well perceived by the market and we're trying to push more because obviously it takes some time. And one of the struggles that we have in penetrating a market with a completely new brand in a very critical time is that people lost trust in the banking system when in the past two years. So they always questioned whether we would be able to provide a stable, reliable platform for the people from a B2B perspective as well as B2C perspective. So I think slowly it will come back, but I think we're happy with the pace that we're going at this point. That's really exciting, I know. Really exciting. I do wanted to actually zoom out a little bit and talk about the landscape in Myanmar and how that's been affected by all of the political turmoil. You just mentioned something uh, really interesting, which is that people don't have trust anymore in the banking system. Can you share a little bit more about that and how Mo is like filling that gap? And I don't know if there are other players in the in the country that are also helping to fill that gap, but would be really curious to know what that looks like now. Sure. In Myanmar, specifically, the fintech sector is driven by big banks or telcos, as it usually goes, even if you look at similar markets in the region. So the biggest players are led by banks or telcos, and they're trying to supplement a value-added 
service for their customer base first, right? From my perspective, the lack of um, trust from the customer base from a business or a personal uh, consumer is that the banking sector really basically had a tough time in the past two years. And this is not only to do with the situation of the politics, but also has to do with COVID itself, right? The entire world got affected by it. As a residue of that, the banking system was not able to supplement the demands that was required, especially from a financing perspective or even from a cash flow perspective. And Myanmar was worse because it's a very much a cash-based society and cash is still very much king here. Businesses required money, uh, physical cash, and banks were not able to provide that due to the liquidity crisis that we were all having. So the issue stems from there, um, 2021, 2022. And from there, they started to use, actually, like, if you look at it, yes, we were going forward with digital payments, but also we were retracting a bit on the B2B perspective where they're like, I'm just going to hold my cash. I'm just going to do payroll with cash because it's just the easiest, you know, at least I don't have to deal with like having to go cash out or anything like that. So from the business perspective, they were looking for a solution where it can be more reliable for them. And especially from a micro SME level, they're thinking, okay, I, it needs to be quick. It cannot be stuck. Their money cannot be stuck in a bank account. So we provide that solution where money movement was easy for them to do without having to hold cash. And if they needed cash, they can still cash out at our agents. So we ensure that we're providing the pain point of money movement as well as the pain point of acquiring cash to them. And that's where we come into play. Many of the players in the market focus more on the B2C perspective. So they do have consumer wallets providing digital services, um, but we come in at a different angle of focusing mainly on the B2B side for the time being. Got it. Got it. That's really fascinating that I guess trust was lost in the in like banking sector, mm-hmm. uh, this liquidity crisis, but instead fintechs were able to build that trust by providing, I guess, the right cash flow at the right sort of friction points. Mm-hmm. Um, and that seems, seems like it's done. It's done really well. Yeah. Um, that's great. Then I also want to ask because I mean you must have been thinking about your own liquidity. Uh, I know you shared before with me that you actually bootstrapped Mo yeah. uh, at the beginning and um, took 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 your time fundraising, but we're obviously mm-hmm. then able to to share like a very compelling story. Can you also tell us a little bit about about that experience, like bootstrapping a startup, um, especially in an environment where there is a liquidity crisis? Like, how did you manage that? How did you think about that? Um, and how has that, how did that turn out, I guess, when you eventually did go to fundraise? Yeah, definitely really difficult during that time, transitioning out of my day-to-day banking role and doing it into a founder role was completely different. Um, as a founder, you have to start thinking about everything, basically every single thing you have to start to think about and also prepare for your team yourself and your company to be ready for what's next to come especially when we don't know what's going to happen even tomorrow during that time so i bootstrapped for 2021 the entirety of 2021 the reason is because i was building the product itself and doing research development so the actual cost was only in you know the software development part and i was able to do that i said i'm gonna bootstrap um so we were able to fund some for about like six months on that. And then afterwards, only then I started to fundraise. But 
fundraising was a very difficult journey. In 2022, the beginning February, I started this fundraising journey and what's starting to look outside of Myanmar and looking into the regional space. But Myanmar was perceived in a negative light and it was very difficult for me to fundraise or tell a story for a VC to believe that the company is going to grow and it's going to be okay. Because I was the one on the ground and trying to grow the company. I do see that there are still opportunities and I am optimistic about, you know, how Mo can grow in, in a market like Myanmar. Yes, it is very high risk, but because I've been here and I have been through all the, the toughest time with, you know, COVID and then the military coup, it was very much, I understood that things can only get better from here. And it, it did, right? In 2023, it's looking a lot better on the ground situation. So it was difficult specifically to also share that, um, you know, come and see for yourself. It's going to be okay. Someone even told me, a VC told me that, you know, with the growth rate that you have, if you were in Vietnam, it would be so easy for you to get funding. But because you're in Myanmar, that was the most critical risk. So what we did was pivot away from Myanmar more and focus more on the regional space. So our headquarters is in Singapore at the moment, but we also have offices in Vietnam. So my tech team is actually in Vietnam. My CTO is in Vietnam. Um, so we basically put our eggs in different baskets rather than just in Myanmar. Uh, fundraising specifically, we were able to raise locally. Um, and we were looking at raising again, actually, um, this year, probably around August for our Series A. Very exciting. Very exciting. And I, yeah, I mean, it sounds like a real challenge. A lot of investors look at Myanmar, especially if they're not from Myanmar and uh, yeah. you know, they, they just can get, it's really easy to get scared. Um, how, like, how do you see this space evolving? I mean, there's obviously there's banks that we talked about. There's investors trying to get more comfortable with Myanmar, but are there other stakeholders that can help support the tech ecosystem, particularly the fintech ecosystem in Myanmar. Um, what do you think needs to happen? Uh, I think, you know, politics <laughs> aside, uh, what what do you think needs to happen to um, really build out like a thriving tech and fintech ecosystem in Myanmar? I think one of the key piece that is not active in the Myanmar market right now is actually the financial literacy piece. So what Mo has done is actually we have a Mo Foundation and a charitable arm under Mo Company, and that just provides financial literacy programs by ourselves. The reason why I say financial literacy is one of the key pieces because, yes, we're providing them the platform, but if they don't have the knowledge to use these platforms effectively, is our solution really solving the problem at all? Or we're just another part of the problem itself, right? So we want to be able to help in that aspect. And in Myanmar specifically, financial literacy comes from various different um, parties that can come from the regulatory party, the NGOs. So I know that um, UN is also doing a lot of work on these and it has been effective. I do know other organizations that have been focusing on financial literacy and it's good to see. I think this part is really needed. And this is once we have enough people that understand basic financial knowledge of, you know, saving, setting financial goals, how do you manage your income and expenditure? These I'm talking about very basic financial literacy. I'm not talking about like, you know, investing in the stock exchange and whatnot <laughs> like that. So if once we have these foundations set up, or at the very least, not, 
people don't need to know everything, but there needs to be a centralized source of legitimate programs and knowledge center where they can come to. I think that is the missing piece. And hopefully we can set that up to grow. But in a country like Myanmar, I'm just happy to see that even the biggest wallets from a B2C, you know, purchasing at a merchant with a QR code and the positive trends that are going, I'm really happy to see. I think it's the first step forward, but moving on, it's to push more, not only about payments, but, you know, providing actual basic financial services, such as like saving or even uh, micro loans to the nest- required unbanked population. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I'm actually really uh, glad that you brought up Mo Foundation. I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, and it sounds like it's providing, um, yeah, really meaningful financial literacy, again, to the 70% of the population that is on and underbanked. Um, so that's, you know, really excited to hear about that. And clearly a lot of stakeholders can get involved in this space. There's a lot of room, it seems like, for um, the tech industry to thrive. There are many solutions, many problems that need solutions. Um, mm-hmm. everywhere you look. I guess, uh, I know we're almost out of time. I do, I do want to ask you, you know, what do you see as the future of fintech in uh, in Myanmar, um, what's it going to look like in five years and 10 years? And do you also have any advice for other entrepreneurs who are looking to enter um, the tech space in an emerging, potentially politically unstable market um, similar to Myanmar? Yeah, I think Myanmar specifically, well, the fintech sector is definitely going to keep growing, especially because the interoperability projects are coming in right now. So if you look at Thailand, anywhere in Southeast Asia, Malaysia, Singapore, there's that um, centralized QR system that's going to push forward that digital QR movement or wallet movement. And that's happening in Myanmar as well. So in the next five years, I think the fintech sector definitely is going to bloom and it's going to be similar to that of in um, Thailand. One of the things that um, tech founders that want to come into Myanmar space have to understand, or even in any emerging markets, yes, the news in the news, if you go look at it, it's not going to look the best, but like yeah. please do come on the ground and have a look at it personally to see. I think, you know, anywhere you look, even through the gloom, there are opportunities and there are some sunshine that's still left. So I just, I don't know, maybe it's my experience in the past two years that has led me to be this, have this outlook in life. But I think that no matter what market you're going into, there are going to be opportunity. It's just that you need to understand what your vision is and what your passion is to do it. And I think if you have the right passion, enough passion and a clear vision, you'll be able to get through whatever challenges that come by. So that's what I want to leave it with because I don't ever want to discourage someone and say, hey, don't go into that market. Don't go into this market because nobody knows enough unless you're on the ground, actually experience it at all. Thanks. That's a beautiful way to end it, actually. Thank you so much. I think what you're... A lot of what I'm hearing is we're actually a lot more similar than we are different. And as long as you have a, you know, a clear, a clear vision and the perseverance to push through, then you'll, you'll definitely make it. For sure. For sure. Wonderful. That's, uh, that's all the time we have for today, but thank you so much. Um, I've learned so much from this conversation and um, yeah, thank you for being on the green room. Thank you so much for having me today. It was really, really lovely. And now a word from our sponsors.
Hello, my name is Todd Schweitzer. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brancas. Brancas is a Southeast Asia-based open finance technology company. And we do several things. We work with banks and other financial institutions with a set of software solutions to help them launch open APIs and API products um, in a matter of weeks. And we also provide uh, simplified APIs that enable any fintech or e-commerce or online business to instantly connect to financial services across Southeast Asia through a simple API. We operate in Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand, Singapore, and soon Bangladesh. And I'm very excited to participate in the Green Room and forward to supporting the Green Room podcast and also the broader Apex Oxygen initiatives. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Green Room with Amrita Veer. Listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. Make sure to hit subscribe to get the latest updates. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we would really appreciate you leaving us five stars, a review, and passing us along to your friends. And if you know anyone who'd be a great guest or have any feedback, reach out to us at greenroomfintech at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Catch you later.